his symphony depicted the sorrows of russia the height of the steppes and the agonies of indigestion part one of bizarre by lawton mccord this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. to my favorite poet virginia woods mccall the author thanks life judge the century the quill the new york times the literary review and the new york tribune for kind permission to include in this volume certain contributions to those publications he hopes he is remembered to ask such permission in each case preface this good form requires that an author mention in his preface the persons to whom he is chiefly indebted i take this opportunity of stating that during the preparation of this book i became appreciably indebted to dr warren s holder my dentist mr william vroom my tailor mr m teschow my stationer and tobacconist and mrs acker morall and condit my grocers although these gentlemen neither corrected the proofs of my book nor saw it through the press nor allowed me access to rare documents and family letters nor treated me to intimate accounts of their fathers and great-uncles as they knew them though they did none of these customary things nevertheless i became decidedly their debtor and still am indeed without their stimulus this book might not have been written what nuts unsolicited personal dominance have you ever on returning home from a round of calls discovered upon your coat a large obtrusive spot stricken with horror you wonder how long it has been there did you have this adjunct when you appeared before your wealthy aunt that severe female has never quite approved of you and now this will finish you as far as she is concerned did you exhibit yourself thus disgraced at the bromleys you will recollect that the maid eyed you queerly when she opened the door and that mrs b had frequent recourse to her log nets then too both the greens and the worthington seemed a little stiffer than usual how did you acquire it anyhow it looks and feels like ice cream of a very rich quality ice cream that has drippled merrily in leaps and bounds but you had no ice cream to-day neither did you talk to any one who was having ice cream perhaps you have been struck by ice cream just as people are struck by lightning the weather does such peculiar things nowadays i have a gray suit that is a constant prey to spots its frail color sickly betwixt and between shade chosen in haste and repented of at leisure puts it utterly at their mercy and they flock to it things sticky and glutinous pounce avidly upon it nor is its seat reserved from paints and varnishes sauces afflict it oils take advantage of its helplessness grass bedizens it with garish green i try my best to protect it but what can i do what am i against so many while i am rescuing my left elbow from the machinations of a passing dish i unwittingly suffer my right cuff to be enticed by the gravy in my plate as i walk discreetly in the middle of the sidewalk an automobile out on the street salutes me with a volley of mud the most notable spots happen mysteriously they appear out of the air as it were like the pitches that frost makes on window panes i submit the phenomenon of their strange origin to the scientific world as an instance of spontaneous generation 
the spotability of my grey suit is surpassed only by the achievements of my blue serge i shall not here discuss my english tweeds nor my scottish cheviots nor the braided cutaway and the lounge suit that i had made for me in bond street for fear the reader might divine that i never possessed those garments this suit is not a victim to spots it deliberately invites them it is a connoisseur a discriminating collector scorning such vulgarities of paint and pitch it seeks the exotic the outre amazing stickinesses the wilderness undreamed-of goos although delighting in intricacy of design and delicate nuances of shading it prefers durability to all other qualities some of its antiques particularly a brownish-white one resembling an octopus over the front pocket have stood the test of time and clothes-brushes on three occasions this remarkable collection has been almost entirely destroyed by benzene each time the principal specimens have survived intact these cleanings divide the history of the suit into four epochs spots of the fourth or present epoch are of small consequence spots of the third and second epochs are more interesting while spots which antedate the first great deluge are quite rare among these last are the octopus and other gems of the collection once, when I had become exceedingly irked at having to go about clad in pseudo-tapestry, I handed the suit over to a desperado of a ladies and gents tailor, a man who had the reputation of being capable of getting anything out of anything or anybody, and besought him to raise the frescoes. He attacked them after the manner customary to cleaners, that is to say, he drove out the spots with smells, only he used smells that were nothing short of brutal the rout was complete when he brought the suit to my room on saturday night i could hardly believe my eyes being forced however to believe my nose i hastily opened the window i could understand why the spots had departed i even felt sorry for them not daring to put the suit away for fear of contaminating the rest of my apparel i hung it over the back of a chair by the window but the incoming breeze instead of carrying the aroma away wafted it directly toward me it was certainly strong it fairly assaulted the nostrils one good whiff of that vicious chemical is almost enough to make you dizzy it treated me as if i were a spot i picked up a book and tried to read but could not concentrate my attention the spot destroyer was continually interrupting my head was spinning so that i could hardly see I realized that the life of a spot was not a happy one. Thinking that smoking might help, I was about to light a cigarette, when I remembered reading in the papers of people who struck matches in fume-filled rooms, and then were born blocks and blocks without knowing what hit them. So I gave that up and sat a while dejected. Then another scary thought came into my mind. What if I should be asphyxiated? I pictured myself being found dead in bed, having been extinct for hours and hours, and the mournfulness of it broke me all up. Overcome with emotion and the spot destroyer, I gathered a few things into a suitcase and went out to spend the night at a hotel. When I returned to my room on the following evening, the aroma had gone, and the rays of the setting sun, illuminating the old blue suit as it hung there on the back of the chair, showed me a host of familiar faces 
particularly that of an especially offensive brownish-white octopus over the pocket. They had come back every one. Not a design was missing. Shelf Culture A man of education and refinement like you needs books befitting your culture, your place in the world, said my visitor. He spoke as though he were a reared friend of the family, but actually he was not just that. I had never seen him before. He was honoring me with a call at my room on Freshman Row. I had come to college to get in touch with Belle Lettre, and law Belle Lettre were seeking me out. Recognition had come far sooner than I had hoped. To appreciate what I felt, you must know that Belle Lettre Ambassador was no ordinary person. He had the clothes of a clubman, the benignity of a clergyman, and the dignity of an undertaker. There was scholarliness in the droop of the pinched glasses on his aquiline nose, and as he talked he kept lifting his curiously arched eyebrows in a manner that fascinated the beholder. From the subject of my culture in its broader aspects he progressed by easy gradations to my culture in its relation to the works of Hawthorne and Irving, the two authors indispensable to a man of discerning taste, the authors whose writings constituted the logical nucleus of the well-bred student's library. He was happy to be able to tell me of the rare opportunity that now lay in my grasp, of acquiring the immortal and exhilarating works of both of these masters at one and the same time, in one and the same set. The urgency of my need for Hawthorne and Irving being thus established beyond the shadow of the hesitance, the only thing for me to decide fairly and squarely was whether they should come to me in blue half-Morocco or in red buckram. The splendid showing that either set would make in my bookcase was attested by the accordion-plated binding sample which at the proper moment he produced and unfolded, nearly a yard of titled bookbacks. I signed on the dotted line, and accepted his congratulations, while he accepted my two-dollar deposit. About a week later the box arrived. Eagerly I lifted forth the magic volumes which were to put me in a new intellectual plane. Somehow the bindings seemed to need breaking in. It creaked and cracked at the hinges, and the pages clung together in little groups, clannishly. The gluing of the backs was queer and casual. The hand that had tinted the elegant colored frontispieces was evidently a heavy one. No matter. Hawthorne, Irving, and mine. I had been taken into the higher circles of culture. That very evening I plunged into masses from an old manse, and he stuck at it. Each day I balanced my morning's shredded wheat with Hawthorne mosses at night, till the entire volume had been systematically consumed. Then, having created my new literary universe, I rested. Today no one can stump me on mosses. Mention the old man's to me, and my whole manner changes. My face lights up with intelligence. My eyes sparkle. My nostrils dilate, like those of an old fire-engine horse, at the clang of alarm gong. Yes, right this minute, I can give you moss for moss. If only I had gone on and read all the other volumes of the set, who knows? I might now be 
dean of a college or second dr frank crane alas i continued to rest on my mosses arguing sophistically with my conscience that these books the nucleus of my ultimate library were precious possessions not necessarily for immediate perusal time-defying classics like hawthorne and irving would keep and be equally enjoyable years hence if not more so in fact it would be almost extravagant to use them all up in the beginning so it was tacitly decided that we three nathaniel washington and i the first who had read buckram the latter in invisible yet palpable freshman green should grow old together the fourth member of our little group he who had introduced us had dropped out i neither saw nor heard from him again it would seem that he worked like lightning striking in the same place only once not so his firm however they struck me by mail each month awful iteration but before a year had passed there descended upon me another emissary of intellectualism this personage expounded to me the doctrine of the deluxe i learned that an edition of any author no matter how reputable that author may be was made dross if published for the public at large only as a subscriber possessing a numbered set of a limited edition could one obtain the quintessence of literature fiat deluxe let there be e light the fact that this prophet of almost vellum exclusiveness was physically a fat and florid irishman whom a wiser man than i might have mistaken for a saloon-keeper in his sunday clothes did not hamper his spirit enthrallingly yet confidentially he discoursed on selected literature for the serene few i could be one of those serene few i could i did i signed in his display room to which this rotund spider allured me i examined enraptured sets of all the leading deluxe writers there was peeps with pasted labels smollett and fielding with special illustrations twelve volumes of the world's best oratory a bobtailed set of stevenson the inevitable plutarch in full morocco that was very like shellacked paper and many more but the magnum opus of them all was a green buckram affair in thirty tall tomes calling itself the bibliophile library of literature art and rare manuscripts to emphasize the word art in the title there was as an adjunct a three-foot portfolio of reproductions from paintings here was something that cast hawthorne and irving into the shade it was world-wide wonderful later i came to know it as the hash as in a trance i said yes to the bibliophile library to the great orations to the much shorter r l s later i took on a few more my finances grew groggy indeed europe's difficulties over paying her war indebtedness are as not in comparison and then at last the miracle happened the book concern mislaid their record of my indiscretions and all scowls ceased for three years then we discovered collectors 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 not the sort that a edward newton writes about they came faster than i could insult them litigation cash compromise formal return of books such is the story of my life with great authors or the horrors of dunning street 
but I shall not allow it to take its place among the successful biographies and intimate journals of the season. Distinctly not. It is for the elite alone. It is to be published in sugar-cured oilskin. The edition to be limited to two numbered copies, one for me and one for the Ashcan. Portable Pigeonholes Aside from a few unimportant physical distinctions of the chief difference between man and woman is that his pockets are in his clothes, whereas from her a solitary one dangles fitfully from her hand. Man is girded about with these little repositories for the safe keeping of his belongings, while woman, less interested in conservation than in cosmetics, holds her booty ever accessible, so as to be able at any moment to dispose of three dollars ninety-eight cents or powder her nose. The ding of her husband's cash register and the click of her dangle bag mark the systole and diastole of married life. Man delights in multiplicity of pockets. He must have clusters of them, layers of them, pockets within pockets, otherwise his search for anything he has hidden on his person would be uninterestingly simple. Fancy, for example, the monotony of travelling if, at the call all tickets please, there were but a single pocket to excavate. How difficult it would be, when riding on a street-car, for one to put up an appearance of searching madly for his purse, while he allowed his companion to pay the fare. The instinct for stowing away things in pockets, manifested in childhood by proneness for smuggling home from parties such contraband as strawberry tarts and layer cake with soft icing, continues throughout life. But as one grows older, the reason for these cachets is less and less obvious. The delectable but adhesive loot in the boy's pocket is soon separated as much as possible from the lining and devoured in rapture, but the dry accumulations of the middle-aged man, such as useless ticket stubs, old newspaper clippings, business cards thrust upon him by a salesman, are accepted absent-mindedly when handed to him on the street, unposted letters which he promised three days ago to drop into the first mailbox. All these lie buried and forgotten until resurrected on suit-pressing day. He secretes them with the infatuation of a dog interring bone. Only, unlike the sagacious hound, instead of getting rid of them by this process, he merely turns them into encumbrances. A pocket that has long suffered from congestion will sometimes take matters into its own hands and empty itself. Without bothering to give any warning of its intention, it acquires a hole in one corner and then quietly disposes of its contents. In this way, small but useful change departs in company with your latchkey via your trouser leg and your unfortunate fountain pen, let down suddenly, as though by the springing of a trapdoor, falls clear to the bottom of the inside of your waistcoat, where it lies prostrate, gasping out its last spurt of ink. There is a treacherous kind of pocket, inhabiting a vertical slit in the side of an overcoat that simulates openness when it is actually closed, so that the unwary owner, imagining himself to be putting a thing into a safe nook, is really poking it through a hole and dropping it upon the ground. The average tailor has an unpleasant sense of humour. He allows you fifteen pockets, and then proceeds to fit your suit so closely that not a single one of them can be used unless you take the precaution of stuffing each pocket with cotton batting when he tries the suit on you he will systematically take in all seams and buttons in such a way that a postcard inserted in the breast pocket would be sufficient wadding to throw the entire coat out of shape 
perhaps he goes on the assumption that when you have paid his bill you won't have anything left to put there every pocket is a latent distortion put something into it and without swelling a tumour utilize your hip pocket as an oasis near a bustle these cares and tribulations are as we stated at the beginning of this treatise the lot of man alone a woman while accepting the responsibility of the vault has thus far avoided the responsibility of the pocket preferring to let her husband be a walking warehouse for two it is her method of maintaining him in subjection if she too were bepocketed she could not keep him on the jump picking up things she has dropped and trotting back the things she has left behind nor if she were not in the habit of making him dutifully store her gloves fan handkerchief etc on his person could she put him in the wrong by taking him to task for forgetting to return them no woman is too wise she talks very blandly about equality but so far the only representative of her sex to wear a real pocket is the female kangaroo simile mortimer was as bold as orange and pink hosiery and simile was as elusive as a cake of castile silk when at the appointed hour he repaired to her house as punctual as a bill collector she tried like a street-car conductor to put him off but his mind like the face of a cutie was made up becoming as eloquent as a man in a telephone booth which you are waiting to use he said simile i love you her lips quivered like a ford but the look in her eyes was as far away as brooklyn ah oh, marry me he pleaded his voice sounding as hollow as a campaign pledge or i shall be as wretched as poor as custard he edged nearer to her till he was almost as close as the air in the subway he gazed anxiously at her face the way a person in a taxicab gazes at the face of the meter her skin was smooth as a confidence man and clear as boarding-house soap he put his arm around her slender waist which was slim as a librarian's salary yielding suddenly like a treacherous garter she murmured in a voice as soft as stale crackers while tears rushed to her eyes like shoppers to a bargain counter i am yours and she clung to him like barbed wire a thrill of joy went through mortimer like a highwayman ah he cried then i'm as happy as a coincidence the beatified race it is wrong to assert that our fiction magazines have lost their power to inspire to uplift High romance and whole-hearted cheerfulness have not deserted them. These qualities have merely migrated to the advertising pages. The morbid, unpleasant fiction is only a short interlude between the innocent joys of nabiscus and fireless cookies, and the wholesomeness of melon's food. After sin and adulteration comes ninety-nine to forty-four, a hundred percent cure. The people in the advertisements help us to forget those in the stories. These pictured endorsers display a generosity that I have not met with elsewhere. They offer me, a total stranger to them, the most delicious refreshments, costly gifts and silverware, whole suites of furniture. They make me aware of long-felt wants. They volunteer to teach me Spanish, or osteopathy, or plumbing in ten lessons. They propose to send me immediately a portable house in many pieces. 
of a new lease of life in many doses inquiring sympathetically are you bilious here i confess i sometimes feel embarrassed when my old family doctor asks me in the privacy of his office questions of this sort i am prepared to answer them but when as i am turning over the pages of a magazine at a public newsstand someone bobs out from behind a respectful soap advertisement and accosts me brusquely with how is your liver or are you bow-legged i feel positively uncomfortable this forwardness due to the bad influence of the fiction characters is i regret to say a trait of some of the women how sad it is that editors should wilfully allow them to be contaminated i have seen a little campbell soup girl of a quite tender age placed on the same page with a heroine whose only topic of conversation was unmoral love luxuriant creatures as unabashed as they are beautiful invite my approval of their stays and make disclosures of the most sensational kind all of this may be in accordance with the modern ideas of frankness may be part of the sex education campaign but somehow i can't get used to it i am still old-fashioned enough to believe that woman's place is in the home especially when she is undressing however while the behaviour of these people toward me is occasionally a bit disconcerting the department toward each other is uniformly admirable in their own sphere they lead model lives their family devotion, for example, is a treat to behold. Just see Mamma and Papa and Susie and Marion and little Jack all seated around the dining table. From their happy smiles it is easy to tell that they love each other, and jello. After dinner, dear kind Papa will not bury himself in the evening paper, as selfish, inconsiderate Papas do. He will give Mamma and the good rosy-cheeked children each a stick of spearmint then all the family will gather round the fire in peaceful attitudes and listen to the phonograph which protects the atmosphere of their home and susie will sit on the arm of papa's chair and fondly compare their whole proofs later when susie's bright young man dressed in a knobby kuppenheimer suit comes to win her heart with a box of hoylets Mamma, whom papa still adores because her complexion is euphified with pompeian while take marion and little jack upstairs and show her maternal tenderness by teaching them how to make colgate's dental cream lie flat on a prophylactic they learn gladly for they love mamma and wear garters and union suits just like hers even more remarkable than the family devotion of these people is their supreme capability they never do anything without brilliant success papa can whenever he feels the inclination build a launch or become a magnetic speaker or earn eighty dollars a week in his spare time or evolve a thriving chicken farm from two eggs when he goes fishing you see him in the act of reeling in a six-pound trout when he goes duck hunting you see him casually bringing down a bird with each barrel and when he plays billiards you see him in a backhand position and a Doncaster shirt executing a shot that would make the reputation of even a profession look at him now seated at his desk in his office directing a great business without the least worry or effort see the respect on his employers faces at this very moment he is concluding a deal that involves millions and yet how calm he is all because he wears bvds 
in short the race for indorsers produced by the eugenics of advertising is not subject to the ills that ordinary flesh is heir to they are the heroes of the present age deified like greek orion in the realms of space long-legged serene divinely handsome we poor mortals humbly try to imitate them and lay our wealth at their shrines as did the ancients at the altars of their gods our ceres is aunt jemima our mercury is phoebe snow our adonis is the arrow-colour youth our venus is the physical culture lady and our romulus and remus are the gold dust twins end of part one